reading from Colossians 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Thank you, Shirley, for reading that text for us this morning. We are going on a trip together this morning. We are going to go on a journey. Uh, We're taking a trip through time and space. Uh, We are not only traveling away from Tucson, but we are traveling to the cool Mediterranean breeze of the ancient Mediterranean, as you can feel. Uh, We're traveling through centuries in time as we go back 2,000 years uh, to try and understand for a moment what context the text is speaking to us. See, anytime we open the Bible, we're going on a trip. We're being transported out of our context, our culture, our setting, and we are taking a trip into a different setting altogether. And whenever you go on a trip you always bring with you luggage. You bring bags. You pack suitcases with you when you go on a trip. It's not good or bad. It's just the way it is. See, sometimes when we come into a text, we bring in the suitcase of kind of our personal history. Maybe last week you were here and you uh, heard the word fathers, and that brought to mind something. That's the suitcase of your family history that you packed and you brought into the text with you. You follow what I'm saying here? Sometimes we bring in um, the, the baggage, you could say, uh, the suitcase, the luggage of our kind of cultural history, right? Um, our culture. So maybe you saw the word submit two weeks ago or the word obey in the text, and it brought something to mind. And it's because we're not objective observers, right? Like none of us comes to this text, none of, none of us comes to the Bible in a vacuum. There's no such thing as somebody who walks into this without any kind of history, any kind of background. We're whole human beings. We're whole people. We have a story. We have a history. We have a background. We have culture. We have ethnicity, language, right? Race. All of these things play a factor in how we read the text and how we approach the text. And this text, this morning, we come in not only with our own cultural history, our personal history, we come in with 246 years of legalized slavery in the United States. Those are are heavy bags that we're pulling into this text that we're bringing with us, right? Now, don't hear me say that you have baggage, okay? We all, that's, I'm, I'm not saying that baggage, the word baggage has baggage, I could say that, right? Um, what I'm saying is we have a burden that we're bringing in with us as we approach a text that talks about slaves and masters, right? We have 246 years of our nation in our history saying that human beings 
were not made in the image of God, that they were less than, that they were worth less. In fact, that they were more like animals and commodities to be traded, bought, and sold than human beings. We have 246 years of men who didn't look all that different from me, standing in a pulpit that didn't look all that different from this one, holding up a Bible that didn't look all that different from this one, preaching texts not that different from this one, and saying that slavery is good. It's not. And that is a lot of weight. That is a heavy burden. Those, those are the kind of bags you've got you to roll on wheels through the airport, right? These are heavy burdens that we bring into the text this morning. And so my job here, what I'm hoping to do, is not to try and convince you that somehow you can check those bags at the door. You can't. It would be weird if you could, right? My job here is uh, I hope that we can, for a moment, we can unpack some of those things. We can acknowledge those things. They exist. It happened. That we can unpack it a little bit. And we can try and see and discern how, uh, how what's going on in this text is different from American slavery for a bit. We can unpack and we can compare and we can look at it. Um, because what I want to do is I want to take us on a trip back to where this text is happening so we can hear what Paul was saying to the Colossian church. So we can hear what the Spirit might be saying to our church so that we can sit in this text and not just be informed, but we would be transformed by the Word of God. Amen? So I'm going to do my best, folks. It's heavy, though, and I acknowledge that. Let me pray, and we're going we're gonna to get into the text and get into a few things. Lord Jesus, we need your presence here. Lord Jesus, it's heavy uh, to consider a text such as this on a day like this. God, we're thankful for Juneteenth. We're thankful that it's a day that represents freedom. God, we lament and we grieve that it's against the backdrop of 246 years of pain and suffering and evil. God, we pray that as we come to this text, uh, you would give us clear hearts and clear minds so that we can read what you might be saying through this text to us today and how we might be moved to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption. Uh, we've been going through a series in the book of Colossians for about two months now, and we're almost done. We're at the second to last week. Next week, uh, Dr. Gary Nebaker is going to be leading us through the last section here in chapter four. Um, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our ushers will bring a copy of God's Word to you. Uh, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, Go ahead and hang on to this one. It is our gift to you. Uh, y también tenemos en español. Si necesita una copia de la Biblia, por favor, levanta la mano y diga español. Y alguien va a darle una copia. Si no tiene uh, la Biblia, uh, por favor, este es nuestro regalo a usted. Estamos en uh, Los Colonenses, capítulo 3. Uh, that's probably the best I've ever spoken in Spanish. So, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> I've been practicing that one. Um, okay, so here's where we're at in Colossians. We're in chapter 3, uh, verse 22, right at the end. And Paul wrote this. It is a letter. He wrote this to a church. He was in prison when he wrote this. He wrote it to a church that he had never met before, the church in Colossae. 
And his main theme, his main idea is that Jesus is supreme in every aspect of life. Another way to say that is all of life is all for Jesus. That's Paul's main theme of this letter. And he writes, uh, and as he unfolds in chapter 3, he starts to talk about this idea how somehow Jesus, by his blood, by his death and his resurrection, is uniting heaven and earth. Somehow, mysteriously, Jesus is bringing a piece of the future, the new creation reality, where everything's going to be set right, where no sin or death or pain or sorrow or grieving or suffering are going to be anymore. Somehow, he's bringing a window of that, a glimpse of that, a piece of that reality here, now, in the present. And he says that the way that that shakes out in the life of an individual is they start to exude forgiveness for other people. They start to exude gratitude. They start singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. They bear with one another in love. They're patient. They're kind. They're loving. And then he says, but this doesn't just bear on you as an individual. It also has a bearing on all of society. It has a bearing on all of humanity. And the way it's going to transform and revolutionize and change human history is through the most basic of social institutions. So in chapter 3, he talks to the most basic social unit, the home, the household. And first he talks to husbands and wives. He talks about marriage and how the, the new creation reality impacts and changes marriage. Then he talks about how the new creation reality impacts and changes parenting, family, and children. And then lastly, he speaks to... Uh, this category of people who lived in the home, in the Roman household, bond servants, slaves, and masters. And here's where we got to do some context work, right? Because uh, when we think slaves, we have all of that we're rolling in. We think of American slavery. Now, there's a few things that we need to know, some key differences between American slavery and Greco-Roman slavery, Okay. The first key difference is that Greco-Roman slavery was not race-based. It was not race-based. In the American system, obviously, uh, our system was based on some human beings being of of higher value than others because of their lineage, because of their heritage, because of their skin color. Uh, That's not what was going on in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, In fact, most Greeks and Romans who owned slaves had other Greek and Roman slaves, right? So this was not an ethnic system. It was not a racialized system. Uh, The second thing that we need to know that's a key difference between American slavery and the Greco-Roman system uh, is that Greco-Roman slavery was often voluntary. It was often voluntary. Not always, I need to say that. Sometimes people were prisoners of war. But it was often voluntary. And what would happen is someone would need to pay back a debt and they would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery to the person who owned the debt so that they could work it off. It would be less like forced kidnapping and forced labor and more like having a credit card bill due to American Express for $100,000. And they said, hey, you could uh, pay this off next month if you have that. Or you could come and work for us for the next two years in our call center Um, but you have to live here and eat here, right? It's more like that than uh, forced kidnapping and forced labor. So it's still not good. It's still not preferable, but that's why the the word is translated bond servant in your text, in our text here for ESV, and not slave, because they're trying to make that subtle distinction between forced kidnapping and labor and uh, voluntary servitude to pay off a debt. Does that make sense? 
Um, so still not good, but it's often voluntary. And the third thing that we need to acknowledge here is that Greco-Roman slavery was often not lifelong either. Because it was often based on paying back your debt, if you paid back your debt, you were released from slavery. You were eman uh, emancipated, right? Um, and so that's why we see uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this very situation. He talks to slaves. He says, if you have the opportunity to purchase your freedom, you should do it. Because slaves were often freed. Slaves were often freed. They were often emancipated. In fact, some uh, masters would pay a peculium, which is like a small payment for good work, and then the slaves or the bondservants would use that to actually purchase their freedom early. So it's not race-based. It's often voluntary in this system, uh, and it's also not lifelong in this system, unlike the American slavery system. But we need to acknowledge that that does not make it good. It doesn't make it good. This was still not a good thing. This was still not a desirable thing to be enslaved. Enslavement is always, always an evil corruption of God's good gift of work in the world. Amen? Always. And so this is not a good thing. This is still something that these folks uh, felt oppressed. They were still pushed down. They were not in a good situation socially. So why doesn't Paul just light this system on fire? Why doesn't he just, uh, instead of what he says here, why doesn't he just say, okay, release all your slaves, let's end the system? It's a complicated question, has complicated answers. Um, I found that the, the little study guide that we have been selling for Colossians, it has actually five or six reasons why maybe he didn't do that. It's speculation, but it's hard to answer. So if you look in there, you might get some better answers than what I have. My personal opinion of why he doesn't do that here is because he's speaking to people in their circumstances where they're at, right? He's speaking to folks who are suffering, they're in oppression, and he's trying to speak directly to them, give them something, right? And so uh, he speaks to them, and he's trying to raise the bar. He knows that for many of them, it's a temporary position of low economic status. It's a temporary position where they're downtrodden and that they might actually gain their freedom later in life. Um, in 1 Timothy, he is much more explicit about slavery. He, he says uh, that the slave trade is a marker of the kingdom of hell. So that is a lot more, more, uh, more specific there. Um, but in this passage, in Ephesians, he doesn't really condemn or condone. He doesn't really do either. He speaks directly to where these folks are experiencing life now because he's trying to bring the new creation reality to bear on their life circumstances. Does that make sense? So I don't have a perfect answer. Why doesn't he burn the system down? I don't know. But what he does do is he lights the sparks here that eventually you're gonna grow into the full flame of abolition in later centuries. He doesn't burn it down, but he lights the sparks, okay? And in doing so, he's radically raising the bar for every single person involved in this system, slave and master. He's radically raising the bar on this system. His goal is to show these folks that living in the reality of poor economic conditions, living in a system with little power, little authority, living in a system that gives them very little dignity, that there is still good news. There's still good news. There's still hope. And the good news is that they have a new and a better master. They have a new and a better master. And you and I have good news because we all have a new and a better master. Master. And because of that, one, the bar is raised on human dignity in our work. 
The bar is raised on human dignity. Let's take a look, finally, at the text here. At verse 22, it says this. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So what he starts with here, I think it's important for us to notice he, he says earthly masters. He's trying, again, he's emphasizing the temporary nature of the people who are in charge of them. They're not ultimately the ones who are in, in charge, ultimately in authority. But he compares these two ideas uh, to say, this is how you ought to work in light of the new creation. In light of the new creation reality and the position you're in, this is how you should interact with your work. Not as eye service or people pleasers. What is eye service? Eye service is, is doing the right thing when people are watching you do it. Eye service is working hard, giving your best effort, your best work when your boss is walking by, right? Eye service is pulling the spreadsheet up on your computer when people are walking past and then dropping it back down to look at Bleacher Report when they leave, right? Eye service is doing the right thing when people are watching you do it, right? People-pleasing. What is people-pleasing? I have to admit I am a people-pleaser. <laughs> it's a problem I have. My name is Keith, and I'm a people-pleaser. Um, and I would venture a guess that probably the majority of pastors you've ever met in your life are also people-pleasers and struggle with this. Uh, people-pleasing is when you try to earn and gain the applause of people. You want people to like you. And just the truth is, I want you to like me. <laughs> I want you to think what I say is smart and important and good, right? I care what you think because I'm a people-pleaser. I fight against it, but I am a people-pleaser. And people-pleasing in work means that you do the right thing, you do good work, not necessarily just when people are walking by, but because you care what people think about you, because you, it matters to you what they say about you, what they think about you, their praise is what's important to you, right? So he contrasts that, not eye service, but rather, he says, sincerity of heart, sincerity of heart. Now, sincere, that means honesty, right, earnestness. Um, a sense of doing the right thing. Uh, another way to translate that word sincerity in Greek is, uh, from the Greek, I should say, is generosity. So you could think of it like this. A generous heart means that even when no one's watching you, even when no one can see if you're doing good work or not, you're still giving what you have to the job, right? You're still working hard. You're not trying to slack off when no one's walking, uh, watching because, uh, you know, they're making more money than you make. You're doing the job that's asked of you, and you're doing a good job at it, even when no one's watching you. And what about the opposite of people-pleasing here? He says, not as people-pleasers, but rather fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. See, a relational element to work is important, right? That's part of your work. But who you fear, whose praise you earn, is, is just as important, if not more important, than the actual praise, right? Because he says it's not about pleasing your boss, it's not about pleasing your master necessarily, but knowing that there is another master who is watching you. There is another Lord who is keeping track. Fearing the Lord, uh, I sometimes get the image of like being afraid, cowering in a corner or something. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a healthy respect a healthy acknowledgement for who Jesus is. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the King of kings. 
He is the one who created all things. In him, he, is, uh, he has created everything, and he has created everything for him, right? He's sustaining and holding all things together. Uh, so a healthy acknowledgement of who he is is what fearing the Lord is, and that'll change how you work because it won't just be about earning the praise of people, but knowing that even when they're not watching, even when they don't give you praise, Jesus still sees. And the ugly side of pleasing, right? How am I doing? Do I need batteries? Maybe. Uh, the ugly side of people pleasing, the ugly underbelly of people pleasing is that when you don't get the praise, what happens? If you don't get the praise, I know what happens to me. I start to get bitter. I start to think, ah, they don't, they don't deserve to have me. That's pretty selfish, huh? <laughs> they don't deserve me. Um, or even worse, I just start to sabotage myself. I start to sabotage my work. I don't, I'm not even going to try to do good work, right, if I don't earn it. So people-pleasing does not ultimately lead to good work all the time. It's temporary. Fearing the Lord means that Jesus is watching. You have a different motivation, a different person you're trying to please. Um, and then Paul summarizes the whole thing in verse 23, this whole idea. He says, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not for men. Whatever you do, whatever you do, if it's big or if it's small, Whatever you do, if it's significant, yeah, sure, I'll take that, Scott. If it's significant or if it's overlooked, whatever you do, if you're doing paid work or unpaid work, thank you so much, Scott. Whatever you do, if it has a huge impact on people or no impact at all, whatever you do, if important people are involved with the work or insignificant people, anything that you do, he says, it's for Jesus. It's for Christ. It's not for human beings. It's not for your coworkers. It's not for your employer. It's not for your supervisor. It's not for your family. It's not even for yourself. Anything that you do is for your new and better master, Jesus. And he says, here's how you should do it. He says, work heartily, heartily. It's not a word we use very often in English, right? Heartily. It's kind of hard to say, actually. Heartily. I think of like a hearty soup, <laughs> a hearty chili, right? Uh, it's full, right? It makes you full. It's heavy. It's weighty, right? Uh, the way that this actually, I don't know Greek. Anything that I need to know in Greek, I just ask Pastor Marcus because he does know Greek. But the Greek word here is in psyche, and we think of that as meaning in mind, but really what this would have implied here is with your whole being, work with your mind, your soul, your body, your relationships, your emotions, your spirituality, everything that you have, work as a whole person, bring everything to bear on your work. You're not a cog in a machine that just does a task. You don't just press the buttons. You're important. You matter. Bring your whole person to your work because Jesus is the one who's watching and you're not working for your employers. You're not working for your company. You're working for him. So Paul is speaking, remember, to the people in the lowest rung of the social ladder. These are people who uh, the Greeks would have thought had no logos. That means they have no rational capacity. They're at the bottom of the social hierarchy, right there with children and animals, right? Um, 
And what he's doing here by addressing them directly, by speaking to the bond servants in this household code, is he's saying, you're members of this household. You're important pieces of this household. He's giving them something that the Colossians would not give them. He's giving them something the Roman Empire would not give them. He's giving them dignity. He's giving them value. He's giving them recognition. But not only that, he is expecting that they raise the bar on how they view their own work. He is expecting that they view their own work themselves with dignity, like their work already matters, like they're working for the new creation and a new master already. He wants them to be whole people. He's raising the bar on dignity. Number two, he's raising the bar on identity. Let's keep reading. Verse 24, it says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Our identities get really wrapped up in our jobs, right? Our culture says we are what we do. We are what we do. This is not, I'm not immune to this. My identity gets really wrapped up in ministry and being a pastor And I would guess that if you're an educator, that it gets really wrapped up with being an educator. That if you're a lawyer, it gets really wrapped up with being an attorney, right? Because we are what we do. That's what our culture tells us. But this is what Paul says. He says that knowing from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Imagine with me, if you would, that there's been a public reading of a will. A CEO of a company has died. And they're now reading his will out. Let's, uh, let's just say Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Imagine who's not there at Jeff Bezos' uh, will reading. The ones who pack the boxes at the warehouse probably aren't there, right? The folks who on Sundays are dropping off your packages at your door, they're probably not there at the reading of the will, right? What's really interesting to me is that Paul is speaking to slaves, he's speaking to bond servants, but he's using the language not of payment and wages and what they've earned. What is he saying? He's saying, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. See, this isn't employment language anymore. Now he's using sonship language. He's speaking to them not as though they were slaves, but as though they were children. And not children of these masters, these earthly masters that probably oppress them, that hurt them, that don't pay them. He's speaking to them as though they were sons of the Lord Jesus. They are heirs to a new inheritance, a different inheritance. See, an heir is not the same thing as an employee. An employee doesn't receive an inheritance from the CEO. An employee doesn't receive an inheritance from his supervisor. They're no longer slaves. They're sons. They have a new identity, a new status. They're heirs. And this status change impacts the way that you view everything when it comes to your job. Your sense of security is not in your tenure in how long you've been there. Your job may come and go. Your circumstances may change. Wealth may dissolve. Your bank account may run dry. But what we will never lose, folks, what we will never lose is our identity as children of God and heirs to the kingdom that's coming. Why? 
because our status and our identity is secure, not because of what we do, but because of who Jesus is and who he says we are in light of that. It's wholly given to us as a gift by the good master, the good king. Third, the bar is raised on accountability. Let's keep reading. Verse 25 says this, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This should be a comfort to these bond servants who are hearing this because my guess is when you're considered at the bottom of the social ladder, when you have very little dignity, people oppress you. People push you down. People act like you are not a full human being. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying the bar is raised on accountability. Someone is watching. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he does. And there won't be partiality. What's partiality? Partiality is unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared to another. It's preferential treatment. It's rolling out the red carpet for some people and ignoring other people entirely. Paul says, that's out. That cannot be a part of the new creation reality in employment. Look what he says just a few sentences earlier in chapter 3, verse 11. He says this, here in the new creation reality, in the kingdom that's here on earth, in the church, in God's people, here there is not Greek and Jew. There's no preferential treatment based on your language whether you're a native English or Spanish speaker, no preferential treatment. Here in the church, there is not circumcised and uncircumcised. There's no preferential treatment based on your religious heritage, on your theological training. Here in the church, there is not barbarian or Scythian. Your ethnicity, your racial identity has no bearing on how you will be treated in this place. Here in the church, there is no slave and there is no free because your socioeconomic status has no bearing on how people will treat you here. There's no partiality, amen? That does not have any place in the kingdom. He says that the wrongdoer will be repaid and that's good news for the poor, that's good news for the oppressed. It's good news for people who have no power, people who've been wronged. Jesus is watching and he's good, he is just. And then he turns his attention to the masters. Chapter four, verse one. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. See, he addresses the masters and he's essentially saying to them, masters, you also have a master. Masters, someone is watching you too. To whom is given much, this is the master that they serve. To whom is given much, much will be required. The Spider-Man version, the Spider-Man paraphrase, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah? So here's the question that, the masters in this setting should be asking themselves, here's the question that you should be asking yourself if you're in a position of high economic power, of high economic influence. You should be asking, if you employ other people, do you pay a fair wage? You should be asking, 
If you're a supervisor in your job at work, do you treat the people under your supervision with dignity, with respect, with kindness? You should be asking if you're a landlord, do you treat your tenants equitably? Do they pay a fair amount? Do you fix things when you should? How do you steward the economic power and the influence that you do hold? Because some here hold power and influence. Unless you say you don't, unless you say you have no power and no influence and this doesn't apply to you at all, watch out. (laughs) When you're at a restaurant, when you're at a coffee shop, when you purchase a ticket at the movie theater, when the line is taking a long time at the fast food place, how do you treat the wait staff? How do you treat the barista, the cashier? Do you treat them? Is the bar raised on their dignity? Is the bar raised on their identity and their status? Because the bar is raised on your accountability. Do people smile when they see you come in to the restaurant because they know how generous and fair and kind you are? Or do they whisper to their coworkers? See, we all have economic power and influence that we steward in our, in our country, in our society. It's just a matter of how you treat people because the bar in the new creation has been raised on your accountability. Jesus is watching. He knows. And that is good news for those of you who feel stuck at work. That is good news for those of you who seen unseen. That's good news for those of you who feel mistreated. That's good news for those of you uh, who are the cashier at work and people look right past you. They look right through you. They treat you like garbage. We have a new master, and he raises the bar on accountability. That's a promise, but it's a warning for us to use our power to help human flourishing. It's a promise and a warning that we should not pursue selfish gain. So whether we have a lot of power or a little power, a lot of influence or none at all, our aim is to serve our new and our better master the best way that we can. In our circumstances now, bring the new creation to bear on that reality. And what is that master like? This is what he says, what King Jesus says in Matthew to his disciples. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is a new and a better master because he himself identifies with the servant. He himself takes on the role of the slave, and he lays down his very life that you and I would have the bar raised for us. In Jesus, we have a master who calls us to do the same. He's not distant. He's not somebody who can't relate. He's near. He's good. He's just. He's fair. And he is a servant to all. He is a new and a better master. Let's pray. King Jesus, we're so grateful that you came not to be served, but to serve, that you wash your disciples' feet 
that you weren't considering what kind of applause you would get from people when you decided to do the hard thing and go to the cross. Jesus, we pray that we would recognize that you are a new and a better master and that that would have a huge impact on us whether we are in a position where we feel like we have no power or we have all the power. Help us to live in light of the new creation reality. Help us to raise the bar in our work just like Paul raised the bar for these slaves. We pray that that a little glimpse, a little window of that new creation reality would come here in Tucson as it is in heaven. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.